Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to be joined by AJ Piplica, founder and CEO of Hermius, a company that is developing a Mach 5 aircraft named the Quarter Horse and has just partnered with the U.S. Air Force. AJ, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. First off, thanks so much for having me on the pod. It's a fun experience. I'll, I'll tell you a little anecdote. I was uh, in a meeting at the Pentagon with a three-star, and I said something around acquisition, and he was like, oh, did you study acquisitions? I was like, no, but I did listen to Acquisition Talk last night. <laughs> a funny experience. Making you a little bit smarter every day. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, a little bit about about the company. Founded Hermes back in 2018 with three other co-founders. The four of us all came from the commercial space world, SpaceX, Blue Origin. We were together at a small company called Generation Orbit for about three years. We learned a lot about how to develop complex systems in, in today's world. And through that experience, I was obviously working on hypersonic vehicles and uh, kind of saw that the technology to build a Mach 5 reusable aircraft was mature enough today, at least at the component level, to start trying. You know, there, there really aren't any kind of science miracles that need to happen. It's really focused on the engineering of how you get everything to work together at the system level efficiently enough to actually go fly a mission up to Mach 5 and, and back. It's pretty clear to us that technology was there to do it, but it required a different approach than had traditionally been taken. And the hypersonics world and also aircraft development in general, that's really, I think, where the commercial space or new space upbringing that we all had really came into play. The kind of core pillars that we've established at the company that come from that world are, number one, vertical integration. That's even more important in these types of aircraft than it is for things that fly slow. The faster you fly, the more coupled all the components are, the harder it is to draw a line between where the engine stops and then the aircraft begins. So that really has to filter out into the entire organization. Number two is being really hardware focused. We live in a world of, of digital engineering to for, for many folks, and I think it's incredibly important that we always stay grounded in the hardware because that's really where the you know the rubber meets the road. And finally, getting to integrated hardware and software systems as quickly as possible, and then iterating. I think uh, we've in some cases you know lost that willingness to to build hardware and, and break it and then iterate on that relatively quickly. And I think that's been a really strong underpinning of the the commercial space world that we're bringing to the hypersonics world and the commercial aviation world here in the future. The big picture, long-term vision that we started the company to go after is accelerating the global human transportation network by building Mach 5 passenger aircraft. It's not an easy mountain we've picked to climb here, but when we looked at, of course, the technology, the national security applications of the technology, and then the kind of private funding environment that, that we're in today, it was pretty clear to us that we're in this like perfect storm of timing to actually make something like this a reality today, where five years ago, this wasn't the case. Hypersonics was not the priority that it is today. I think you've seen on the private side, a number of big exits where folks have been validated in their investments in aerospace companies, which you know, hasn't been, hadn't been the case before that. So that's really pushing folks to find the next small satellite market or small small launch market, given that those two are relatively saturated at this point. And the hunch that we had was, hey, this could be, this high-speed aircraft thing could be it. I think we'd, we'd seen what other companies have been able to do, Ariane at the time, and Boom, and others, pretty other large chunks of private capital. And we thought they were not necessarily going about it the right way, because at the end of the day, to get to a passenger aircraft, you're going to need billions and billions of dollars. So how do you finance? That's frankly a harder challenge than the technology itself. And, and for us, it was always, you had to 
solve problems for customers along the way. I'll harken back to SpaceX plenty, I'm sure, over the course of our discussion, but they didn't set out to make humanity multiplanetary, a multiplanetary species and expect to do that without bringing in some pretty significant revenue along the way. That's how we've set ourselves up from the very beginning to go achieve this goal. There's a number of interesting things you pointed on there. First is the development process, and we'll definitely circle back to that. And then also the financing. And you got some financing from the government, which was a big story for the Air Force as well and their ability to do that. So we're going to circle back there. But first, I want to dive just a little bit deeper into the quarter horse itself. First, can you just talk about what is the engine, what's new about it, and how are you going about it? Sure. So quarter horse in and of itself um, is really a vehicle that's designed to do two things, the touch Mach 5 and to be reusable. There are all these challenges to building a hypersonic passenger aircraft. We'd be naive to go try and bite them all off at once. So step one for us is build an engine that can operate from not moving on the ground to Mach 5 at 90 to 100,000 feet and demonstrate that in flight. So that's really what is driven, uh, what, what Quota Horse is. The engine is what's called a turbine-based combined cycle engine. It's actually a combination of two different types of engines. So you have a traditional gas turbine engine, which is very similar to what on today's aircraft. It's a straight turbojet on, on Quota Horse. And we use that for all of our flights up to about or by itself, all of our flight up to about uh, Mach 1.5, Mach 2. That's kind of what that engine, the JD-5, was designed to do. It uh, powers the F-5, ENF, supersonic fighters. And then the other piece of the engine is a ramjet. No moving parts. uses a compression of air that happens over a shockwave to um, compress the air, burn it, and then exhaust it out of a nozzle. So it's a fairly simple device in and of itself, but unfortunately can't operate until you're going supersonic speeds. So the turbojet's there to get us up there. We start the ramjet up in the kind of Mach 3 range, and then once it's started, we accelerate up the rest of the way. So there's this gap between about Mach 2 and Mach 3 where ramjets don't really work well enough because there's not enough compression, and turbojets don't work well enough because you can't burn them hot enough with the, the turbine downstream of the combustor. So that's the, the question. It's like, how do you bridge this valley of death, if you will, in the propulsion world to actually get this engine to work? And the way we've come up with doing that is putting a pre-cooler in front of the gas turbine engine. So essentially, you know, air at Mach 3, the air coming into the engine is around, you know, 800 degrees Fahrenheit. And the pre-cooler cools down the air so that by the time the air gets to the compressor face in the gas turbine, it's down to about 125 degrees. So it cools it down 675 degrees in about a tenth of a second. So it's not a very efficient system. It's important that we accelerate through that regime relatively quickly and then transition to the ramjet, which is much more efficient and keep climbing from there. We've designed the architecture around existing gas turbine engines, and that's like a, a real key design feature, not just from a technical standpoint, but from a kind of holistic business standpoint as well. One of the first questions you'll get from an airline you try to sell them an aircraft like this is, okay, what's your power plan? And to develop a clean sheet gas turbine engine that does exactly what we want it to do would probably be a decade and a couple billion dollars. And that's a pretty tall order for most folks. Unfortunately, we don't have a billionaire founder to bankroll us, so we have to do it the hard way. So basically what we've done is we've designed the entire engine architecture around the assumption of the gas turbine that's going in there is an off-the-shelf engine. So for quarter horse, we're using the J85, which is a tried-and-true engine it's been around for, I don't know, maybe 50 years at this point. We've designed a, a bypass system for it so that when we get to Mach 3, all of the air goes around the gas turbine and straight into the, the ramjet in the back and then out the nozzle. Similar to the way that the J58 did it on the SR-71, 
but fully bypassing the, the gas turbine. There's some doors in the front, doors in the back. Close up when you're above Mach 3, all the air goes around, and it acts, the whole engine acts like a, a pure ramjet. There's a, a lot to unpack there. We've already built and tested a subscale version of this architecture where we've proven out a couple elements of it, not everything yet, but we've proven out the, the pre-cooler. So we, we've shown in a wind tunnel that we can run a gas turbine engine that was only designed to fly to Mach 0.8 at you know 26,000 feet. We flew it in a ground test facility up to the equivalent of about 60,000 feet at Mach 3.2. So like faster than the SR-71 for an engine that came from a tiny little turbojet from the Czech Republic. And uh, also proved out that the ramjet portion could operate down low enough. So there's some overlap between the two modes. So we flew that or tested that from about Mach 2.7 uh, up to above Mach 4. So I've got enough data to be confident that the architecture works the way that we expect it to. And, and now we're in the process of building that first full-scale engine for Quarter Horse, getting on a test stand here in the next month or two, and then demonstrating the real hard part about that, which is the transition from turbojet to ramjet and back. So that's still coming in the future. And then, of course, flying it, this type of engine has never flown before. There have been other ground development programs, the DARPA's AFRI program is a pretty good analog, a larger scale, but similar type of configuration. So there's there's going to be a lot of firsts in this program, but yeah, mostly focused on, on the engine. You mentioned eventually you want to get to Mach 5 and 90,000 to 100,000 feet. Where, where are you thinking theoretically the range is going to fall here? Like the range for the aircraft? Yeah. Oh, so for, for quarter horse, it'll fly a couple hundred nautical miles. The range for the eventual transport aircraft will be around 4,000 nautical miles. So long enough to cross the Atlantic Ocean without stopping and with a stop across the Pacific. Okay, great. And how about the aerodynamics? There's been a lot of talk about trying to calculate exactly how fluid dynamics is going to work at those types of uh, speeds and temperatures. What are you guys doing there? Yeah, whatever we think it is, it'll be wrong. (laughs) Pretty straightforward kind of approach in terms of aerodynamics development for a vehicle like this. Lots of computational fluid dynamics and then definitely a good deal of wind tunnel testing, both for the vehicle side to understand uh, kind of the forces and moments that the vehicle will experience when it's flying, how it'll be controlled, but also separately for the inlet for the engine. So it's like I said before, it's hard to draw a line between where the engine stops and the aircraft begins, the inlet's probably the most ambiguous part of the whole thing because it provides the primary compression for the engine when you're flying really fast and about 80% of the thrust up above Mach 3. So it's super important from a propulsion perspective, but you're also generating a good deal of lift from it out out front too. Yeah, super important component. So it's got its own wind tunnel test campaign so that we understand both the kind of aerodynamic uh, performance elements of it, uh, as well as the propulsion performance elements of it. The aerodynamic challenges for a vehicle like this are, are pretty significant. The biggest one is you have to be super low drag. You need to balance being able to get off the runway with being it, which requires as much lift as you can give it. Getting through the, the sound barrier, breaking the sound barrier at Mach 1, which requires the smallest amount of cross-sectional area and drag that you can give it. And then a couple other pinch points where the kind of the net thrust that you're generating, so the difference between the thrust the engine is generating and the drag that the vehicle has are very small. 10% of the thrust is actually net thrust is being driven to acceleration. Those pinch points are really the, the critical ones where you really have to buy down the uncertainties as much as possible on the ground. But at the end of the day, there's still going to be significant uncertainty that the only way you're going to buy it down is, is by going and flying. There's plenty of phenomena that can happen in small portions of the vehicle that can have very large either aerodynamic performance or control or propulsion performance implications, boundary layer transition and how shock waves interact with boundary layers can be really significant, even though they're you know, tiny little things. And this is one of the, the hardest things about 
designing vehicles for hypersonic regimes is that we really don't have a lot of data to anchor the models that we have. So we're not shooting in the dark. We know what we're doing from a kind of first principles physics standpoint. But the uncertainty bounds on all the analysis and the ground testing that we're doing are still pretty big. I think we've flown maybe like 15 minutes above Mach 5 with an air-breathing aircraft in like the history of the United States. So there's a lot to be learned from operating these regimes that's going to drive future iterations of vehicles like this. You're not going to have to have the problem, or do you face the problem like, doesn't the, the Concorde didn't have an articulated nose? It seemed like it overly did. complex to Yeah, me. the pilots had to see. <laughs> that's why. Um, so yeah, this uh, quarter horse won't have a person on board, so it'll have uh, a combination of different systems that allow it to operate the way it needs to. GPS, internal, internal measurement units uh, for inertial navigation. There'll be cameras, altimeters, all sorts of different sensors that give it the situational awareness that it needs to, to operate. But it'll fly pretty similarly to a rocket. It's not going to be a like strongly autonomous vehicle. It's going to be making a bunch of decisions the way a pilot would. It's going to be a, a fairly kind of simple rudimentary set of autonomy where it's following a trajectory with, with waypoints and, and so forth. But yeah, these vehicles are laden with all sorts of different trade-offs um, where the right answer isn't blatantly obvious and it can very often come down to engineering judgment and going and figuring it out because yeah engineers can debate all day as to when a boundary layer is going to transition and you don't know until you go fly well that's i think that has huge implications just for the acquisition process being able to let the engineers figure it out and we'll definitely talk about that but i want to hit you with a couple peter Thiel questions here for now (laughs) what's an important truth that very few people agree with you yeah two-part answer to this one number one that you can build a mach 5 aircraft with today's technology so maybe that's obvious (laughs) but number two is that you can do it without a billionaire founder and that's i think the real key to to what we're pushing for here the amount of capital that's necessary for these types of projects is obviously huge but being able to do it solving problems for your customers along the way at each stage is how you bridge that valley so yeah that's the other piece yeah, we love the the lean methodology approach here. I think that's going to make a lot of sense. And we're going to talk about the financing piece as well. Here's another Peter Thiel question. They promised us flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. So has uh, technology progress actually slowed down since the 1970s, particularly in hardware? Yeah, so I, I think there are areas where, where it definitely has. Certainly in areas where the vast majority of, of work you know, over the past couple of decades has resided within you know, the realm of governments broadly. Uh, and I'd say let's maybe leave the last decade out of it because I think things have actually started to change quite a bit. Space, microelectronics, hypersonics, these are areas that have for a large part been part of the realm of governments for quite some time. And now, and nuclear is probably another one. I think over the past 20 years, you've seen a really strong transition to just look at the R&D spending that's happening privately versus in the government in some of these areas. And it's pretty impressive. Not only that, forget the amount of dollars going in, look at the capabilities coming out. The only company to be able to land a orbital class rocket booster is private, is developed privately. Not to say that you know, the government didn't have a very important role in, in that process, and I'm sure we'll touch on that a bit later. But yeah, I, I think the ability of private companies to drive innovation and technology development in dual-use technology areas has been key to hopefully taking that question and turning it around over the next next couple of decades. Do you think just like the software mentality, like that was like the free and open space that hadn't been regulated and people have been innovating there? And now it's, it seems like, especially with the new space, bringing that kind of culture into new space and now it's like almost spreading it out everywhere do you see like that as what's going to bring us out like the actual application of software but then also the processes that go along with it in terms of iteration yeah absolutely i think that's huge you look at 
how you take risk, which is how things happen quickly, is you have to be willing to take risk. And the only way you can take risk in, in hardware is if you have a lot of hardware to be able to risk and you can do it in a manner that's uh, not taking risk with human lives. Like when you're building something in the real world, you don't get to press compile that much. So when you do, you have to make it count. But really, the more chances you give yourself to do that, the more effective the, the end product's going to be. And I think that's really where things have started to change. If you look at every flight, that, and I'm going to use SpaceX too much in the course of this interview, but every time they flew a vehicle for a customer, that was leveraged as an R&D flight test opportunity. And I don't think they necessarily get enough credit for this, but Every mission, they, every commercial mission they flew with Falcon 9, every NASA mission they flew with Falcon 9 was an opportunity for them to attempt recovery. And they failed a lot. And the, the blooper reel is one of my favorite videos on the internet. But through that, they figured out all the things that you had to do to get it to work. And they did, you know, from a flight test, quote unquote, standpoint, that's spending a dime of their own money because they're leveraging opportunities that are, that are already there. So yeah, I think being very creative about how you go get the data and do the iteration that you need. Because most customers who are buying launch services, they don't want the rocket to change. But if you look at the first like maybe 20 Falcon 9s, I don't think any of them are the same. So the ability to change but still provide a reliable software solution or service or product um, to your customers is huge. Because if the way you've ingrained reliability into what you're doing is by saying, okay, we did this, it worked, it's never going to change, then you're going to have a very hard time improving on that in the future. But if you've set up your processes to accept that the only constant in life is change, then you're going to be much better off to take everything that you learn and actually integrate it and improve the current product or, or future products much faster than would otherwise be possible. I think that's where that kind of software mentality comes into hardware. Yeah. The only constant life is uh, change. I love that. When I think of just like regular defense programs, like major programs, right? If you look at the F-35, for example, people will actually be like, oh man, like every lot had a different specification and they were like changing along the way. And the real problem was they didn't just lock down the design back in 2007 or when they were going through Milestone C. Actually, they didn't go through Milestone C for a lot later. You know, like that whole idea that, oh, now we have all these different logistics tales and all these things that are going on at the same time. That's a problem. As opposed, well, you should have anticipated that and built your processes like around that to accept it and then actually be able to accelerate. So I kind of want to talk about some of the things that you're doing in your development process and you name them up front and then how it differs from what we traditionally think of that the defense primes really go at it. And of course, the defense primes go at it in a certain way because the government processes force them or incentivize them in many ways to, to be like that. But we were talking about SpaceX and Elon Musk, of course, famously vertically integrated what he was doing over at SpaceX. And you said the same thing. Now, of course, you're getting a very proven turbine engine to base that around. But you were saying it's hard to de determine where the engine stops and the aircraft starts. So where is that make-buy decision? And then why vertically integrate? Because again, a lot of the defense primes, like 70% is actually just subcontracted, sometimes subcontracted to themselves at a different business unit. But they're like prime integrators, systems engineering, program manager types, and assemblers, of course, they want to keep the assembly. Uh, <laughs> but uh, can you talk a little bit about that vertical integration, make-buy decision, and where that kind of falls? Yeah, there's there's a number of different elements to to unpack there. I'll, I'll try to, to hit a couple of them. Number one, just right off the bat on, on make-buy, the, kind of, the way that we think about that is if something exists on the shelf that will work for the application that we have, let's buy it. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. But 
if something needs to be designed from scratch or something needs to be modified to meet our requirements, that stuff has to happen in-house. And the real reason for that is not cost, but schedule. Being able to have as much control over your schedule as, as possible and really hold your destiny in your own hands is more important than you know, the amount of capex that has to go into to building that up in the first place. Because time is money. It's, a, it's an old adage for sure, but it's absolutely true. If it takes you an extra three months to do something, your whole company's burn rate is accumulating that, that time if, if you're on the critical path. Having more control over your schedule is, is a huge reason for vertical integration. We've seen the supply chain issues happening right now. We feel them, whether it's from the you know, electronics standpoint or fabrication capacity. There was a time over the past couple of months where we had exceeded the amount of added manufacturing capacity that, that we could get a hold of, which is crazy to think about. And the lead times that we're seeing where a couple of years ago, you might be able to get an additively manufactured part and in two weeks, it's now eight to 10 if you're paying an extra day fee. So yeah, time is the real key for, for vertical integration. But a couple of the other things that, that come along with that, and it touches on one of the elements that you brought up, which is systems engineering, understanding how your system works from the bottom of every subsystem all the way up to the top is incredibly important. And not just at the top level, program management of a, pro- of a program, or even at the corporate level, but all the way down to you know, the people turning the bolts and, and so forth, and turning the wrenches. Because like, in order to make good decisions, you have to have sufficient context to do that. And these vehicles are so tightly coupled in, in their design um, and how they work. And they're obviously like very multidisciplinary. You can make a small change in an engine component that you think is improving that component's efficiency, whereas at the system level, it's actually a net negative. And this happens all the time. So like you need the tools to be able to understand how design changes affect system level parameters, whether it's performance or cost or schedule, or whatever. But you need to give that decision authority down to the lowest level possible. Um, and the only way that you can do that is within a vertically integrated organization that keeps people's kind of incentive structures aligned. Anytime you add a layer in a supply chain, not only is that a layer of profit that has to get generated, it's also now having to kind of align motivations and incentives. If you're working with a supplier that you're when be one percent of their business, you're probably not going to be a priority for them. Now, if you're 50, 60, 70, something like that, sure, but that's not going to be the case. So um, that's another way that we look at are there places where something's very critical for us, but not very critical for a supplier. That's like a kind of red flag for a for risk down the road. So those are things that we'll, that we'll bring in-house as well. It's not something you can do overnight, the CapEx, to become a perfectly vertically integrated company. You'd, you'd never get off the ground if you did it right off the bat. You have to transition over time to bring more and more in-house as it makes sense. And as the company grows, the amount of capital that's, that's flowing in and out of the company grows. You can afford to, to bring more things in-house and have that schedule control. But the trick is, of course, making it to that point. As you were talking there, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Frederick Brooks, but then also modern software programming. So Frederick Brooks was kind of like all the pieces. It's not like interchangeable parts going down an assembly line. Everybody has to be on the same page. And that coordination follows more of a Metcalf's law or whatever, rather than something like a linear progression. But then there's also the kind of software paradigm, which is let's bust up monoliths and we're going to use these interfaces, standard interfaces, so that each agile development team is pretty much separable to a degree. But it seems like that only works when you have like high TRL or like, you know, high maturity components with which to build from that are commoditized. Is, is that kind of like how you see it? It's like we're in a frontier area, so we need to, it's almost more of the Frederick Brooks model than like an Amazon AWS type model. 
Yeah, I don't think we're quite there yet. Uh, maybe down the road when we're on iteration three, four, five of, of these types of aircraft. Right now we're on iteration zero. So we got to figure out how to make the thing work and then optimize the, the process down the road. But one area where we do take, I think, that type of approach is software and electronics. Those are, you know, you can't separate them from the way the rest of the system works. They're, they're a thing that doesn't necessarily scale from like a mass perspective as things get bigger. So designing your electronics and software for modularity, because you're, like, you're going to do a lot of the same processes in different parts of the vehicle, the ground system, and ensuring that everything can talk to everything else is hugely important. You can do that right from the beginning. That's the, like, the bar for that is, is actually not that high. You can see the difficulty of that today in, in many of our you know, military systems when an F-22 can't talk to an F-35 without another aircraft in the air. Yeah, so it's super important to set that up for the interfaces on the software and electronics side to be understood, open. Yeah, that kind of sets you up for success down the road, just not even externally, but internally. So let's move right along here. You know, most people will actually concede that software development requires iteration, of course. But then, like in the DoD, it seems like a lot of people actually hesitate to say, oh, I got a billion dollar machine that people's lives are going to depend on. So I got to go the traditional method. So what kind of like benefits do you expect out of iterating on hardware and, and how does that all work? Yeah. Would you rather fly on version five of a new aircraft or version one? <laughs> uh, like we've been iterating on aircraft for a long time. Maybe it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily look look like it has in software, but it's a key component. Like iteration is really where reliability comes from. Reliability is a thing where you can do all the system level modeling with failure rates and everything that you want up front. What's really going to drive the last couple nines that you need on reliability is flying, operating, finding the corner cases that you didn't think about, and then working them out of the system. And that is something that only comes from iteration. I think when you're interpolating, when you're working within part of a design space where there's a lot of data that exists, so take the T7 trainer, for example, it's not really exceeding performance specifications beyond what other aircraft have done in any dimensions. It's not the fastest aircraft ever. It's it's not, I can't fly the highest or something like that. So you're working within the bounds of what aircraft have been designed to do in the past. So that means, at least from a DoD perspective, that there's a lot of data out there that's going to inform all of the models and, and simulations that you're going to run around that aircraft that allow you to get really close. Um, like you understand how that system works very well, or that type of system. You're making small tweaks in, in certain areas, but at the end of the day, you're really interpolating inside that design space. When you're building a hypersonic aircraft, when we've like never operated an operational hypersonic anything, you're extrapolating. You're beyond the realm of available data. And that means there's a lot more uncertainty. And the only way you can buy down that uncertainty is going and getting it. So that's where iteration is hugely important. Because we could try to design a passenger aircraft right off the bat, given you know, everything that, that we know today. But the scale of failure there is really big. Like when you're spending a billion dollars to try once, that's really difficult. Now, you spend tens of millions to get to that first couple tries, that's a different story. You're like the the risk downside there is so different, whereas the reward is on par. So you, if you can go buy down 80% of the risk at, you know, a couple orders of magnitude less cost and a decade faster, even though you're not necessarily delivering that operational capability right off the bat, at the end of the day, you're probably going to get there if you took a chunk of time and said, you know, do this without a prototype or with as much iteration as you want. By the time that 
time is up. You're probably going to end up with a product if you're going through the kind of iteration path that is higher performing, lower cost, more operable than, you know, one that has just been gone through the process once. So are you guys uh, prototyping these things with a digital thread? Oh, <laughs> we've been doing digital engineering and in, out in the engineering world forever. Siemens did a great job of branding it, though, I will say. No, so like we have uh, a number of integrated systems models that tie together all the analysis that's happening around a vehicle so that we can understand, like I was kind of talking about before, the implications of small design decisions in certain parts of the vehicle to the overall system. Anytime we make a change in you know, an engine component, then that kind of flows back through all of the propulsion analysis, aero analysis, mass properties, comms, everything, back up to the system level where we've got our metrics for top speed, fuel burn, all those types of things that define what the vehicle can actually do. So in that sense, yes, we're absolutely doing that. The digital thread side, which is related more to, sorry, the digital twin side, which is like what's out in the world relative to what you're analyzing, that's hugely important as well. For We've never flown a reusable hypersonic aircraft before. Having understanding like what nominal looks like for a flight and comparing that to what you did so that you have a good feeling for how airworthy the vehicle is for the next flight without having to do a complete teardown and inspection is usually important. But I, I think digital engineering for hypersonic systems is incredibly difficult because of that lack of data to validate your models. So long as you've built up your systems and processes where your analysis tools are talking to each other, you're doing good multidisciplinary integrated design, and you're gathering data from the real world and anchoring all of those models, then yeah, you're going to be in a, in a good spot. But should we go digitally engineer a production line for hypersonic aircraft today? Probably not. We should build a few first and then maybe. Yeah, that was always my kind of concern with the digital engineering. It was that it lent itself to higher, like things that we've done before and we're incrementally upgrading. But then the whole acquisition system is actually designed to do just that because you need the types of data and analysis to get a program even approved right. and go get the money, go do it. And it, that only comes from incremental advances. And when we go to these newer areas with high uncertainty, you might not you know, have the information and you're stuck in like these small kind of S&T things forever. And it just kind of reminds me of I guess, uh, John Boyd's OODA loop, but also the destruction and creation. This is like the DOD in my mind is all about deduction and there's not enough like empirical interaction there. So it's interesting to hear what is that actual blend of moving back and forth between yeah. these analyses and then these empirical evidences, but then not saying like, I'm only going to do one other. Look back at the 50s and 60s, the golden age of, of aviation. We built a lot of aircraft. We crashed a lot of aircraft too. But we learned and we iterated very quickly and we didn't have anywhere near the digital tools or computing power that, that we have today. As those modeling and sim capabilities have become more and more ubiquitous, they're relatively easy to use, they're by comparison or relatively speaking quite inexpensive. So it can be very tempting to rely on them very heavily to say, hey, we don't need to go to a wind tunnel, we've got you know, CFD, we don't need to test this thing, we've got FEA. But the real power, and I think this is what one of the biggest lessons we learned coming out of new space was you have to put those two together. You leverage the modeling and same capabilities to get yourself in the ballpark, get to the 80% solution, but don't spend two years analyzing a problem that can be solved in two weeks by spending some money in testing. So it's really the, yeah, a, a mix between the two that's really necessary to move fast and be successful at that. You know, one other thing that kind of comes to mind, I guess from your approach is that it's like an integrated approach. I'm a, you know, like your founder, there's kind of like, kind of someone that's overseeing the whole thing. And one of the things that Bob McLean, who was a technical director at China Lakes and developed the, the Sidewinder, he was like, one of the problems is 
you like start with this integrated problem statement that's abstract and then it goes to 50 offices and they each do their little piece of it and then it comes back as an integrated problem again from the guy on the line who's supposed to make it work and it's like this whole abstraction it seems like the department of defense almost needs a founder kind of methodology where it's like someone who's taking all the different pieces and really integrating them and then going out and doing it seems to be like the better method yeah that's another piece of where vertical integration really comes in because you have control over a much broader spectrum within that design space than than you would if you're you know, just a systems integrator. So I want to wrap up here on just, can you talk about your engine test site that you guys put up? You said it, you did it in 33 days. So can you describe what that was and how that kind of rapid pushing to test in an iteration, what does that actually look like? Yeah, that was, it was an opportunity for us to really embody the culture that we're trying to build at Hermius. So we took it. The company's growing really quickly. We were, I think, 13 people at the beginning of the year and we're 35 now and we'll be about 50 by the end of the year. Getting people integrated into a culture that, that focuses on speed, decision-making, accountability, and, and teamwork, you can write all the words on the wall that you want, but really what you do is who you are, to borrow a quote from Ben Horowitz. We really wanted to give people an opportunity to prove to themselves what they could do. It's amazing what people are capable of when you remove the the handcuffs that you know come from, in some cases, large organizations, in some cases, bureaucracy, in some cases, just their own psyches. We have a couple of different things that, that we push people to, to do. One is, and yeah, there's plenty of movie quotes here. So one is like, choose your own level of involvement, so Fight Club. It, there's no ceiling to what people can do at a company like ours, just given the rapid pace of, of growth. It really gives people the opportunity to make their own mark and grow along with the company. Number two is, is do less. So if you remember, forgetting Sarah Marshall and the learning, oh, how, yeah. <laughs> learning how to surf scene. No, you're doing too much. Do less. But yeah, I mean, the requirements for things are often dumb. Like period requirements are they're just never smart so minimizing them as much as possible and getting to figure out like what is the real thing that we need to do here and focus like very squarely on that and, and go do it but the other bit is like preparation there's a saying that luck is when preparation meets opportunity well speed is where like preparation meets hard work and problem solving so for us, the test facility, we did this in a fairly non-traditional fashion. It's built out of shipping containers, which is like a little bit of, of uh, homage to our heritage. We started our original test facility there in two shipping containers on a big grass field at the airport there. Now we have a, a building. But yeah, so prefab structures, a lot can be done in parallel. We had a really tight loop with, with the supplier that we, were, that we were working with there. We're like integrating some of the test facility infrastructure while they were still finishing the cabinets and the drywall and everything up at their shop. So it got everything lined up. Yeah, started digging the hole, and 33 days later, we were running an engine. So yeah, it was, it was really an opportunity for us to really embed uh, the culture and show people what they're really capable of. One thing that you're saying about the opportunities that you're giving your people, I was I was listening to Eric Berger. He had that great book on SpaceX that came out, and he was saying like, imagine if you're a man or a woman that's coming into the industry young in 2005, and you either get in on SpaceX or you get in on the Orion spacecraft for, from NASA or one of their contractors. And then you just see like SpaceX, they've gone through a hundred different missions and they're doing all these new things and they're repeating that with uh, the Starship. And then you look over at the other side and they've flown one uncrewed mission and, and that's been like 15 plus years. And so what does that mean to like people's ability to express their creativity and their skill and just like having that kind of work culture? Sometimes I feel like too much of the government experience is on that, that other side. And it's not the people, it's like the process that they're finding themselves in. I want to talk a little bit about, so let's go back to the quarter horse, Mach 5 aircraft. On your website, it said, 
it could add up to $4 trillion to global GDP. How'd you get there? Yeah, so that's that's focused on the transport aircraft. So let's say we um, are successful at, at, at building the you know, Mach 5 transport aircraft, and that connects the world five times faster than ever before. We really wanted to understand what that meant. So we went back and pulled a bunch of literature from studies that had looked at accelerations in transportation networks and the implications that they had, both from a social and an economic perspective. And there are a couple of things that, that we learned. So number one, GDP and trade kind of, or sorry, trade works like gravity. The gravitational force is proportional to the product of the masses of two objects over the square of the distance between them. So trade works the same way, where mass in this case is represented by, you know, take for two cities, the, the GDP of each city, and the distance in this case is an abstracted economic distance. So not just physical distance, but the cost of traversing that distance, the time it takes, convenience, those types of things. So that's a, a really good model for how affecting time affects trade. And then also in, in a couple of these other studies, they were able to kind of understand what the relationship between changes in trade and changes in GDP between the cities that are affected were. It's about one to one. So a 1% increase in trade is a 1% increase in, in GDP for the city. You play this all out with Mach 5 aircraft over you know, the, the span of the entire world. So you're speeding up the global transportation network by 5x. So you're cutting the distance effectively by down to 20% of what it used to be. Now, there's going to be extra costs for that because it's you're going to burn more fuel just because of physics. It comes out to about 5% or so increase in trade on a global basis with yeah, speeding up the kind of major hubs to, to 5x their current speeds. And yeah, kind of play that through the math, comes into around a 2.5% increase in global GDP. So if you look at global GDP growth, out in the 2030s, two and a half percent of that is around $4 trillion. So there's a lot that you can do with $4 trillion. I think there have been studies that say decarbonizing aviation is a $500 billion a year problem. So, you know, it's counterintuitive to think that like speeding up aviation could pay for decarbonizing it eight times over. So that's the scale of, of the problem that we're trying to solve here. And that's like the reason why we're doing this. This has a level of difficulty, arguably as, as hard as going to Mars but we're not exactly a backup plan for humanity. We are unlocking a lot of the latent potential in that the humanity has. You look back at when Rome built out their roads networks, we switched from sail to steam power and marine shipping, and when China built out their high-speed rail network in the 20th century, all of those were accompanied by like multiple single-digit points in GDP growth in the affected regions. So being able to do that at a global scale has the capability to be really world-changing for a lot of things. And we've all normalized to the speed at which the world moves. We had Concord, it was a blip technology arguably before its time, but yeah, we haven't changed the speed at which the world moves since the 1950s. We haven't broken a speed record in almost 50 years, like an air aircraft speed record in almost 50 years, which is like mind boggling. So yeah, there's a lot that humanity can do that we're held back on by the pace at which the world moves. Well, is it the SR-71 that still holds the speed record? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's not surprising then, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. The SR-71, they're contemplating having like whole fleets of like different types of those aircraft in the military inventory and the military just didn't bite. They were like, stealth is just as good. So let's just go all in on stealth. And then we, we forgot about hypersonics and there's all these reports. We need to do hypersonic wind tunnels in the 90s. And Air Force was like, 
no thanks. <laughs> but And now it's becoming a big deal. So maybe hopefully, at least in the military world, it seems like hypersonics has that sex appeal that going to the moon has for the general public. <laughs> yeah, hypersonics has had its fits and starts in funding over the past 30, 40 years. Every like, I think it's a 14 years, you see a peak or something like that. We had the National Aerospace Plane, I guess in the early 90s, X-51 um, and X-43 in the early 2000s. And then after each of those, you had some like pretty significant reductions in funding. And people ask like, okay, why is now different? And I think the answer is because there's a lot of other countries out there who are also pursuing this technology for similar and, and different reasons that we're finally seeing, oh, hey, we're probably a little bit behind in some of these areas. If I look at just from a purely commercial perspective, he or she who gets there first gets to write the rules. Hopefully it's not she. <laughs> oh, interesting. Not that she. That, not is, the other that she. is not what I was going for, but interesting. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it, it's pretty important. You look at the dominance of, you know, the U.S. and European aircraft makers in the commercial markets, and they're the ones to, to get there first, and they have a pretty strong influence over how the rules get written at the international level for aviation. Then, of course, they you know fight with each other all the time, but what wouldn't the world be like without competition? But how about the like operational requirements that like the military is looking, they'll be looking at you for What do you think, like, where do you see yourself in the future yep. if this comes together? Like, how, wh- where are you fitting in into the military force structure? Yeah, so I think the obvious one that, that everyone would point to is, is airborne ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. That was the kind of traditional mission for the SR-71. You know, obviously, we're transitioning from operating from at least an, an air domain perspective from a mostly permissive environment to a fairly contested and in some cases denied environment. And our UAV fleet in general is mostly designed for the prior and not the latter. We've seen the implications of that even with less sophisticated adversaries than China and Russia. We lost a Triton to Iran not that long ago. Yeah, I think that's a big thing that, that pops into everybody's mind first. It's a couple of like unique things that are quite useful around airborne ISR that's done at very high speeds. Number one, you're relatively unwarned. So like people will know that you've been there, but they won't know that you're coming. Maneuverability at high speeds is super important to be able to do that because you're not necessarily telegraphing where you're going. So that, that kind of helps out in a place where space-based capabilities can be lagging sometimes. Synthetic aperture radar is super interesting for something like this because when you're flying super fast, you get a massive aperture. So it allows you to build like a broad area synoptic coverage picture where you get snapshot in time. So like when you're trying to count things on the ground, it's really hard to do that when those things are moving and your pictures are taken over a long period of time. So yeah, being able to, let's say, image all of North Korea in 30 minutes, very useful thing in, in some cases. Other kind of collection things, geowind, obviously, you're probably not going to do too much infrared imaging just because your vehicle is super hot. Electro optical, sure. SIGINT, definitely. ELINT, people tend to turn on radars when fast things fly by. I used to do that with the SR-71 quite a bit, but... Yeah, and then of course there's the long-term logistics and, and people moving pieces of transport aircraft. That's you know a big part of the Air Force partnership that we have today. But things get pretty interesting when you start trying to solve the problem of persistence. So one of the knocks on high-speed aircraft is they can't deliver the persistent loitering coverage that we've become so used to in over the past 20 years. And that's by their nature. You can solve that problem, then things really start to open up. But yeah. You know, I think providing resilience as well for space-based capabilities. Most war games that, that we run today, we've become like very used to our space-based capabilities, whether it's communications or you know, precision navigation and timing. Space is becoming more and more of a contested domain. 
and the ability to reconstitute space-based capabilities in particular geographic regions for um, your short periods of time can be a massively valuable capability, especially if you can do it quickly. So yeah, I think when we first started out, we expected survivability to be the strongest metric. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit before. Obviously, we've leaned on stealth pretty heavily for survivability for you know, the past couple of decades. But as radars become more powerful, the like pace at which radars are becoming more capable is much faster than the pace at which stealth technology is improving. So at some point, they'll cross. And the, the advantage that stealth has given us won't be there in the way it always has been. But the speed and altitude and maneuverability are other knobs that you can turn in the survivability equation. But I think what we've really uh, started to understand is the responsiveness is really the key capability. Even if you're not as survivable as something that flies maybe you know, Mach number or two faster, you know, the ability to cover large areas in a very short period of time is huge, especially out in the Indo-Pacific region. It's an area that's characterized by very long distances and you have to live with the tyranny of distance and speed is a way to conquer that tyranny. So let's get into uh, what what you guys are doing with the Air Force. And so this was a pretty big news recently. You guys actually received $60 million to continue development and 15 of that came from AFWORK's StratFi program. And we talked with those guys about that program last year. And then another $15 million from Air Force PEO Executive Airlift. So there's the, the kind of matching funds that might be a, a transition partner. And then the rest came from private sources. To my knowledge, this is actually the biggest Air Force StratFi from AFWORKS that they've done yet. So that's a pretty big deal. Can you just talk about like your decision to go through the AFWORKS process and then what was your experience? Yeah, I think the changes that we've started to see led by AFWORKS in the Air Force and other organizations in the other services to become more open to working with non-traditional companies. That was also another reason that we figured out after we started the company that this was happening. Uh, was So maybe it was just luck, but it is definitely refreshing to see folks really trying to, to change how the system works here. So yeah, it's been a fantastic experience working with the folks at AFWorks and, and in, in Executive Airlift and other kind of other PEOs and TEOs within the Air Force that have been uh, part of this initiative. I think if we tried to do something like this five years ago, again, we'd be probably trying to work for another phase two, Cibber or something like that. But I think having the experience that myself and my co-founders had in the past with a previous company, we'd taken a single phase one SBIR and turned it into 10 plus million dollar development effort. And that was pretty eye-opening that that could happen. But I think bringing in the end user community at this early, early, early stage, like even when we, we won our original phase two SIBR, the end user was a huge part of that and understanding what their operational needs are, where the problem set is, was really important right off, right off the bat. Great. So you talked about like you wanted to solve problems early, basically, and along the way, because this is going to be a big issue, right? One analyst said the $60 million is like one one step in a journey around the world. <laughs> Can you react to that? But then also, what are you supposed to actually do with this funding? Are you like on to deliver something for the, the government contract? And then what do you think about next steps? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a, a fair assessment. The vehicle only flies a couple hundred nautical miles. So yes, about a step around the world, but you have to start somewhere. Yeah, the way the program is structured, all the design, development, fabrication, everything, that's all happening on private funding. That's basically stuff that we were doing anyway. Within the kind of $30 million government contract, the things that we're delivering are test reports, test data, test plans, and things related to the ground and flight test activities that, that we're doing. So that was, I think, a really important setup uh, for how that contractual mechanism worked. Being able to 
design, develop, and fabricate outside the FAR was huge. Like that would have had a very significant impact on on our business, even in a FAR Part 12 type contract. The key deliverables uh, that we've got are, are, yeah, focused on the the ground and flight test activities that we're doing on the engine, on the aircraft, and then, of course, as as we put them together and and go try and get up to Mach 5 and get back. I think if you compare the results that will come out of this program for the Air Force to previous hypersonic flight programs, it's a pretty valuable effort. Probably an order of magnitude lower cost than any set of hypersonic uh, flight test data for you know a new air breathing vehicle like this um, in the past. I think like X fifty one was three hundred, three hundred fifty million or so. So yeah, it, I think it's a really big value for the Air Force to have access to the the data that's being produced here, and and for us, frankly, we want them to have it too because it's going to really help inform what the next steps are for you know, the development of this technology. If we're able to prove what's possible, hopefully it gets a lot of other folks trying it too. So, you know, as, as far as what's next, once, you know, quarter horse development is complete, you know, we'll have a capability that no country in the world has. And we really want to leverage that as much as possible to advance, whether it's everything from, you know, fundamental science 6162, all the way through to getting tech that's going to go onto an operational system from tier L4, 5 up to 6 or 7. By putting it on a vehicle, it's going to get it into the environments that, that it'll eventually see. Yeah, we've you see, uh, I think, a pretty strong set of use cases just for a quarter horse in and of itself. For us, though, we didn't start the company just to just to do flight testing. You know, that's something that's really only come along recently. We want to be flying that aircraft as much as possible. You know, just like I described with SpaceX in the early days, or in the <laughs> early part of the conversation, that we're doing is generating data that's going to help us improve not just quarter horse and its engine, but the, the next aircraft that we build to you know, scale up to the scale of engine that will eventually go into a, a passenger aircraft. Yeah, that's one of the things. So, like, you're on contract to really deliver information to them about the what's going on in your tests. That reminds me of Armin Alchin, who realized this in the 50s. He said, R&D is not for building, like, operational equipment that you're actually going to use. It's for buying knowledge and options of what will actually work in procurement and giving them the optionality to develop that. So it's interesting. Hopefully the, the government can come along in that way in a more robust manner looking at it. Like you're really buying information in RDT and you're not buying things that have to be like equipped and like fielded and all that stuff, but you need the transition, of course. I wonder, you said you wouldn't be able to do the actual development. So they're helping you fund some of the test stuff and then they get some of the information from the test, but you're doing the development and kind of the systems engineering. That's all you guys. And you said, we wouldn't be able to do it if we kind of had a FAR contract. So there's lots of issues. Is it like you would have to predict exactly what you're going to do? It would be too slow. It would force you into these silos within your company. Like, what is it exactly yeah, so that's going to happen? There's that. There's uh, supply chain implications. There are lots of... By American? Is that? No, okay. not, not that one. But there are lots of suppliers out there that we work with on a regular basis who can manage export control information, but have never been on a government contract before. So if I'm going to go flow down a FAR clause to a machine shop that not taking up a huge amount of their time, it's going to be it's going to be difficult to effectively do business on a, a schedule that's relevant to, to what we need to be able to do. So how about pricing? Do you have any kind of pricing challenges this early in the development process? Because a lot of times fixed price contracts is you need to define what exactly what it is you're going to provide. But I guess you're just like they're ordering test data or like, how did you think about pricing in this early stage? Yeah. So, I mean, it becomes really difficult. I think if I were kind of king for a day, I would definitely expand 
the ability of contracting officers to leverage pricing justification over cost justification for things like this. Because the analogy that I just gave, if you just look at what the government paid for the X51 program, which at the end of the day, the products were test data. Yes, they built a few aircraft or a few vehicles, but they were expendable. They weren't delivered and used again. The things that were that came out were reports and data. And not that we're kind of doing exactly what that program did, but I think you can look at the two programs next to each other and say, yeah, okay, this is um, not flying at Mach 5 for five minutes, but you know, it's, it's taking a new engine. It's going to build a couple different, couple different uh, iterations of the aircraft, and it's going to generate a lot of data. It's going to be a lot of flights. So I think like, you can just do that, look at those two things and say, is this for $30 million a good value or not? But unfortunately, the government's not set up to contract that way. Unless you've got established commerciality, you basically have to go through a cost-based buildup to justify the pricing, which from me as a commercial company, I, that, I don't really like that. You know, thankfully, we've got uh, fixed price efforts. The, the cost accounting standards and everything on the FAR don't apply, which is helpful. But still, I think it sets up an incentive structure that does not push for reducing costs and, and delivering great capability at, at the end of the day. And that's something that I think... We're going to continue, it won't just be us, but plenty of others will continue to bump up against as a challenge going forward. If we're able to deliver a hypersonic aircraft for $10 million, why should you care what the profit is on it? The contracting officer still has the requirement, right? Yes. I guess it's like if you can de- de- deliver a hypersonic aircraft for $10 million, then any Joe Blow can just be like, all right, obviously that's a value, but there's probably a point like where that number is like, mm-hmm. well, I don't really know how much it should cost. How much should I pay? What is fair in this case? And so that kind of like bogs back down into these cost justifications. So you're still dealing with those, those issues? Oh, we're, we're good. No, it, like it took us a while to, to learn through. I've never done a contract of this scale, of this type. Uh, I've done others in the past. So thankfully I had that experience to go through this. I would not want to go through something like this for the first time. Uh, it's like my first government contract. But no, I think it, it takes a lot of iteration. You really need a partner on, on the other end, both on the program management side and in the contracting side, people who are understanding how this is a very unique type of mechanism that, that most people are, are not used to, given that there have been, what, like 20 of these so far, most of them last year. Oh, the Stratfies? The Stratfies, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a different construct. And uh, yeah, you just need people who are willing to sit down and get down to brass tacks, think from first principles, obviously within the bounds of what the regulations allow. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely an opportunity to be creative. Would you ever take a cost plus contract? That's a dangerous question. <laughs> I think, let me put it this way. The, the way we decide whether or not to do something as, as a company comes down to two things. Does it significantly reduce risk and does it significantly accelerate us to our end goal of accelerating the planet? The answer is yes to one or both of those questions. We're probably going to do it. So applying that to a cost type contract, I don't think we're going to be in a place where the answer to those questions is yes for quite some time. When I look at how private capital is being leveraged within what we're doing here, a cost type contract with 8, 10, even 15% profit on it doesn't pass muster with the type of scaling that we need to create to generate the returns that that our investors expect. Plus, go back to the kind of incentive argument that that I made earlier. If we're not incentivized to innovate, make things work better and cost less to produce, we're not going to get to that long-term goal because there's a future here where we get very comfortable as uh, a government contractor. And I think that 
is a kind of net negative to our end goal. What we're building in the national security space here, we're doing it, one, because it, I don't know, I feel a responsibility to do it given like our backgrounds and our capabilities and where we are in the world today. But it's also a step along the way to that eventual long-term goal and everything is aligned. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it would definitely fundamentally change the way the company worked. Yeah, one of the things I hear a lot from the new space company people is that what went wrong? Like, why was Apollo great and everything else not? And it was like, they seem to like target this like um, cost plus mentality and not really sure to what degree that's true or not, but there's definitely a lot of truth there in the incentive structures and then all the business systems and everything else that comes with it. Yeah. How do I want to state this analogy? If a given company needs to return a given number of dollars in profit to their shareholders or to their investors, if you're doing it in a fixed price fashion versus doing it in a cost type fashion, the cost to your customer is probably going to be less at the end of the day in the fixed price one than it will in the, the cost type one. So that seems to me like the better world, assuming you're willing to take the risk on the company side to do it. And there's there will probably be a scale where we're working at. If we're successful enough, that becomes a much harder question to answer. Now, it's we what do we have to lose? Like we we believe in what we're doing, believe in ourselves and have laid out a plan to go execute and we're going to do that. But that becomes a much harder kind of bill to pay as things scale up and get larger and the stakes keep getting raised. Yeah, maybe there's a maybe there's a state where that starts to make sense, but I think when you've got like really strong access to capital to give you the financial capacitance that you need to do things the right way. I so long as so long as that continues to be there and continues to scale, yeah, I I doubt that we'd go go down a cost type route given the choice. And uh, going along this this route, what advice would you actually have for other companies that are trying to break into the defense market? What would you tell them? Yeah, so I'll answer it from a kind of venture back startup type perspective versus a, a small business. I think working with the government has to be a really important part of your strategy. If you want to work with the government for 10% of, of your revenues, it's probably not going to be worth it, mostly because you're not going to be willing to invest what you need to invest to actually get it done. You know, whereas for us, where it's an incredibly well-aligned thing that's very important to our overall you know, strategic roadmap over the next decade, it of course makes sense to do it. And we're fully willing and ready to eat the glass that's required to to get through that kind of stuff and because yeah it's not easy and you definitely have to make some pretty significant investments internally to to get it to work i think it's kind of hard for for some startups to to be able to do that when the government is not a necessarily a big customer for them but i think you're going to see more and more startups that are focused on these dual use technology areas where the government market does play a big role especially early on so i think that's going to continue you really have to build the relationships that are necessary to you know, work through and, and sell programs like this. You know, it's not something where you can just reply to an RFP that's out there on the street. That It's usually too late at that point. But like, you need, number one, to establish the credibility for your organization within your customer set. And that, that takes a lot of time. And not, it's not just like you're out there talking to them all the time. You have to continuously make progress along the way that you're continuously updating and updating and breaking their mental model for what's possible. Like with the first engine that we built, we went and met with uh, some DoD folks before we were even funded. And we're like, hey, we're building this turbine-based combined cycle engine. We're going to have it done in a year. And they were like, we'll see. Come back with the data. So nine months later, we did it, knocked on their door, showed them the data. And they're like, oh, 
you guys do what you say you're going to do. <laughs> this is refreshing. Yeah, building the building the credibility for for the company, the organization, the people, and it like that changes as the company scales. Like we're now constantly doing something we've never done before, and, and we have to keep kind of up in the ante on the credibility side. We also need those internal champions who uh, are going to run the halls whether it's the Pentagon or over the lab, to herd all the cats that are necessary to build programs. You can't do that fully from the outside. So you need that internal advocacy. And then again, that's something that, that takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of trust, frankly. People really have to, to make a bet on a new company like this. And to some extent, their futures and our futures are, are intertwined. Not fully, but you know, there's definitely a connection there. Yeah, you need people willing to take the personal risk to do something like that. Yeah, and obviously you have to build out the, the internal team that's necessary. You need folks who have experience in, in working with the government who understand the, I'll put it this way, who understand the physics of how the DOD world works from requirements and planning to acquisitions. You also have to understand how the PPB process works and, and how Congress and, and the building work together. Yeah, it's a lot, and you really have to be committed to it to make it work. Yeah. So you said you had to make some hires. What kind of who? Are, what what kinds of people? Like what specific? Like how many? Or like what areas are they doing? Are they BD people? And what other types of business systems or special things did you have to do that? If you were purely commercial, you just wouldn't have thought of doing. Yeah. So for us, it's actually not too bad. There. Yeah. So we we just hired our our first person uh, who's full time here in DC, Director of National uh, National Security Strategy, Dan Kleiman. So that was about at the 30, 30 person mark mm-hmm. that you, you had yeah. that kind of yep. specialized person. Yep, about there. We work with a range of different consultants uh, in different places that kind of help guide us and, and help help build those relationships faster than would otherwise be possible. That's super important. But in terms of like business systems, you know, having already built a small company that uh, they work with the government regularly, um, we'd already seen lot of what had to be done. So we built that into the company from the beginning. Working in an export controlled technology area already forces you to do a lot of that from a just a cybersecurity standpoint. So you know, there's obviously things that are contractually obligated to do, but we'd already built all these things out anyway. And luckily not having a cost type contract helps because we don't need a you know, cost type or a DCA approved accounting system in place. You don't have to go through all the actuals audits that you do for, for a cost type contract. So that's helpful. But yeah, need a really good accounting team that is that's used to that, just in case. And then you need a really strong legal team that understands both contracting directly with the government, as well as all the compliance elements that you need in, in dealing with the FAR. I think it comes down to like really understanding each FAR clause that's going to go into a contract. What does this mean for my business? And where are the lines in the sand that I'm not willing to cross? And then there's some that you die on a hill for. And yeah, hopefully you can you have a customer that's willing to work those through with you. I think OTAs are there for a reason. It's also very easy for folks on the government side to just rewrite the FAR in an OT. They're not a panacea for, for everything. Like you really, It's really about the people who are, who are working them. So yeah. If you could wave a wand and you could change one thing about the defense acquisition process, that would make it more appealing for people like you in, in the deep tech kind of commercial world. What would you say? Oh, man. I guess I've already touched on a couple of these, so maybe I get more than one. But raise the reprogramming threshold. The ability to move money around to get up to the point where a company is going through $50 million a year, that's strong. If you can do that in, in three to five years, you've got a chance to be very successful as a venture-backed, dual-use technology company that's primarily working with the government. But you know the PPBE process better than most people, um, and it's not a trivial thing to, to go through. Working with the end user, understanding the gaps, building a requirement, getting it validated. Of course, you don't want to get to the, the folks who 
hold the purse strings and force it down their throats. They have to be, it has to be something that they want that makes sense for them, whether it's within the services or within CAPE, the OSD level. And then of course you have to get Congress on board as well and ensure that the pitch and the catch are, are there and everybody's on the same page. And But yeah, you know, I think a little bit more fluidity in, in how dollars can be leveraged. I don't know how many times I've heard, we got plenty of O&M funding, but I wish we uh, could put some, you know, squeeze this into an R&D role. Yeah, I, I think if you're able to quickly get tens of millions of dollars on contract and, and ensure that obviously you're delivering, that can be quite game changing. Amen to that. <laughs> Any final things uh, you would like to wrap up with uh, here in the last couple minutes? No, I think uh, I think you've I think you've covered a lot of uh, yeah really awesome topics. Really, really enjoyed. It's not not too often to get to chat acquisition with folks and, and they listen to me without falling asleep. So <laughs> good. Awesome, AJ Piplica. Thanks for joining me on the Acquisition Talk podcast. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.